Hello and welcome to Undercurrents. The last time we met Alnor Lada was in Costa Rica in January 2019, when we were privileged to interview him for the first time for Third Space. Alnor is one of our favourite conscientious objectors of the dominant paradigm, as he refers to himself in this conversation. Alnor was a founding member and executive director of The Rules, a global network dedicated to changing the rules that create inequality and poverty around the world. He is a writer and speaker on new forms of activism, the structural causes of inequality, the link between climate change and poverty, and the rise of the global south as a powerful organising force in the transition to a post-capitalist world. He currently lives in Costa Rica at Brave Earth, the centre and community he founded for applied cultural transition to a post-anthropocentric world. We managed to catch up with Eleanor again in Costa Rica this February for our latest episode of Undercurrents. There was one question in particular that we wanted to ask him about that reflects a shift in some of our own priorities at Third Space. In light of the current climate emergency, we've been attempting to incorporate in our articles and interviews the work we've been doing with the resistance movements in the UK, such as Extinction Rebellion, Insulate Britain, and most recently, Just Stop Oil. These are campaigns that are trying to force the government to meet its obligations to act on climate change. There is a lot happening on this front, not least with Roger Hallam and Gail Bradbrook, the original founders of XR, and the different directions they've taken to respond to the crisis. Roger, who is currently focusing on organising a non-violent civil disruption movement in the UK, and Gail, who is working with the Global South, decolonisation and making a radical shift in our current global modernist paradigm. Both directions which we support at Third Space and think are equally important. So while I was staying at Brave Earth this February, I wanted to put this question to Alnor. What did he himself think should be our priorities and how should we be living our lives given that the world's top scientists are telling us we only have this decade in which to act on the climate catastrophe and we might be some of the last generations of human life on Earth. Yeah, it's, you know, it's such a big question, right? Because it, it's tied into so many different inquiries at the same time, right? Yeah. It, there's, there's like, a, it's really a first principles question. Yes. Right, because there's the question of like moral philosophy of an ethical philosophy of like how do we live there's the question of like epistemology and how do we know what we think we know and then there's a question of ontology which is how do we see the world how do we define reality right and they're all so interconnected Absolutely. And, and I think part of like the disservice that um, modernity articulated through both uh, scientific materialism uh, and and uh, also just the the turn that that um, kind of enlightenment logic moved us towards was like the separation of these things right as as different intellectual categories categories yeah. right and pursuits and I really like the work of Karen Barad who's a um, posthumanist philosopher 
Um, she was at the University of California, Santa Cruz, for many years, and she's written a beautiful book called Meeting the Universe Halfway. She's a quantum physicist by trade, mm. and then she became a, a political philosopher, feminist scholar, and so she sort of merges. Uh, she merges these worlds. One of her her concepts, which is a bit of a mouthful, is we have to start thinking about ethico onto epistemologies, right? That these things are not separate. That the 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 ethical dimension of how we should live is deeply interconnected with how we see the world, the ontology, is deeply connected with our understanding of knowledge, the epistemology. They're, they're actually one thing. Mm -hmm. And so when you ask the question of what is to be done, right? What is our response as individuals, but also as communities and also at a civilizational level? For me, this is like the starting place of the discussion, which is, uh, you know, we we are a culture, and when I say we, I'm talking about the, the, the dominant Western culture, the, the kind of globalized capitalist paradigm. We can also call that neoliberalism. Even though neoliberalism was only created in the 70s and 80s, yeah. it's really the culmination. Yeah. It's the heir of the legacy Absolutely. of, you know, the totally. proto-capitalism, industrial mm -hmm. capitalism, uh, technological capitalism mm -hmm. and all the, the the sort of isms that came have sort of manifested in this supercharged form that we can call neoliberalism right mm -hmm. or we can call have a sort of wider aperture and call it capitalist modernity which is the the language of Abdullah Ocalan who's the who's the father of the PKK and and of Rojava the Rojava movement if you've heard of the no, the Rojava experiment um, they, they, it's it's the Kurdish resistance okay. uh, between Iraq and Turkey okay. uh, and Syria, and they've they've created their own state essentially yes, for four and a half million people, yes. and it's based yes. on a lot of um, basically Osman's philosophy uh, and and informed by Murray Bookchin and uh, ecological uh, principles, feminist principles, anarchist principles, and. Mm. Um, and I, why I like the description of capitalist modernity is that uh, modernity is a project of you know, Western enlightenment, rationalist logic meets sort of industrialism uh, is, is sort of one motif that academia, for example, has spent a lot of time talking about. And then the, the sort of economic political philosophers focused on like capitalism right as the political economic machinery yeah. but bringing them together is also very powerful mm -hmm. because capitalist modernity what it hints to is that this is not just an ideology this is also a theology mm -hmm. this is also an operating system mm -hmm. it is the oxygen by which we breathe mm -hmm. right all of us have been programmed Absolutely. into the culture of capitalist modernity mm -hmm. and the culture of neoliberalism and i think that's an important starting place mm -hmm. um to to deepen this inquiry and and what does the ethico onto epistemology mean right because let's start first with what's the the dominant culture and uh there's a line uh that's often attributed to antonio gramsci but we don't know who actually said it where where the it was basically his take on modernity where he says we are prisoners of context in the absence of meaning mm. we are prisoners of context in the absence of meaning mm. and what he's referring to is that the the contextual forces that we've inherited of industrialism, of materialist rationalism that sees the world as separate, uh, you know, reducible atoms and bits and cogs in a machine, you know, all, all, all the sort of Newtonian metaphors that we've inherited. Uh, this context has been imposed on us. 
Right. And uh, partly, and sort of discursively, right, because the two are related, is that we, we, there is a lack and a, a sort of deep loss of meaning. That where meaning used to come from was religious institutions that have now failed us, uh, p people, at least most people, and you know, there's the argument of the rise of you know fundamentalism and all of that. But at, at like a general level, in the in the sort of pop dominant culture, yeah. there's a, a sort of loss of faith, right? And this rise of secularism and atheism, partly because of just the 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 failures of, of institutional religion to provide mm -hmm. any meaning, but also the the deep contradictions at the core, right? From crusades to child abuse to you know fanaticism you yeah. know you name it right yeah. but but also just the 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 understanding that the meaning making machinery of institutional religions has failed us right it's not a path of a mass enlightenment as we once thought it would be right, right. and so many people who are like no you just have to be on this path a little longer you're service is not deep enough, your practice is not strong enough, have sort of realized that actually you can follow the institutional religious path all the way to the very end and it leads to bankruptcy. And, and the same is true of the market, right? Then we replaced our uh, faith in the market, in the faith in religion into a faith in the market, right. and which is, part of its extension is the faith in technology as right. savior and the singularity that's coming and, you know, and you still have your, your techno-utopian impulse, right? That's, that's very strong. Mm -hmm. But that failure, uh, at least for a large majority and large portion of humanity, is very clear now. So the market is not a place of meaning, right? We, we understand all boats are not being lifted and the perfect uh, equilibrium that will be created by the invisible hand of capitalism doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. And then science has failed us, mm -hmm. right? The, there, there was this belief and understanding that just uh, from enlightenment onwards that this path was going to lead to some path of salvation and a theory of everything and we would understand the entire world. And, and again, you know, all of these impulses have their counter impulses, right? And you have your fundamentalists in scientism who believe that everything can be reduced to the atom yeah. and the atom to the proton and the neutron and the electron. And now we know everything. And now, of course, we'll add our quarks and our gluons and our photons. And uh, but, you know, we're itching towards some theory, unifying field theory. Right. And so the market institutional religions, the state have all failed us. And what is the dominant cosmology that has filled the vacuum uh, of, of meaning is essentially consumerism, right? right. Um, like what Hakim Bey calls the, the, the live, work, consume, die paradigm, right? That our identity is defined by how much money we make, what we own, uh, what we possess, and then you know, the, the, the cultural organs then go and display that out into the world. For example, like the role of social media is essentially preference porn, right? Yeah. Here's what I like, here's how I like my cappuccino, here's where I go on holiday, etc., etc. And so the, the logic of the system is sort of pointing to, to this sort of Gramsci idea, right? That we're prisoners of context in the absence of yeah. meaning. So then our job, and the so where do we go from here, becomes the first part of it, recontextualizing where we are, and the second part is resacralizing meaning.
mm. right? Creating our own understanding of meaning that is connected with the sacred. Mm. And by our own, I don't mean like some individualist idea. Uh, what I refer to is more of a discursive, animistic feel that is in dialogue with the living planet, where, where meaning-making is beyond the rational mind. Mm -hmm. It's not anti-rational, it's more trans-rational. Mm -hmm. It incorporates the rational impulse, but it also incorporates the somatic experience of the body, the intuitive experience, the whispering of ancestors, mm -hmm. you know, the murmurs of other ways of knowing and being. Right. And so both of these aspects become critical, right? And, and what do we do? So let's start with how do we recontextualize where we are? And I'd say the starting place is to be really good students of our culture, mm -hmm. right? If we understand the impoverishments of capitalist modernity, of neoliberalism and what it's doing to the world, then we start to better understand how to navigate, right? Um, in, in various traditions, there is this understanding of, of uh, cyclical time that helps orient people in context, mm -hmm. right? So in the Vedic traditions, for example, which you're uh, well-versed in, is the idea of the yuga cycles, yeah. right? That there's these four major cycles yeah. Um, and uh, time is not linear, it's not an arrow. Mm -hmm. uh, progress is not just, you know, s some uh, kind of direction over there, right, that we're invariably going to get to because we're on this march uh, of, of, of civilization, yeah. right? That actually time is much more messy that future, past, and present exist simultaneously, that there's cycles within cycles, that there's these broader sort of movements. Yeah, and exactly. and the, the notion in the Vedic tradition is that right now we're in the Kali Yuga. Mm -hmm. We're in the Dark Ages. Yeah. And the next phase of the four phases is the Satya Yuga, the mm -hmm. Golden Age. Mm -hmm. And then from there it'll degrade to the silver, to the bronze, and then back to Kali Yuga, right? Mm -hmm. and And... Depends on who you speak to, you know, the cycle, these windows are massive cycles, right? And like Sri Yukteswar, for example, in the Holy Science, talks about the, the cycles being 12,000 year cycles. Yeah. Which I prefer to the, you know, the 488,000 year cycles because they're almost like too big to even comprehend. Yeah. And there's no right in this. It's just what I like about the notion of uh, the Kali Yuga is that A, we're invoking... Uh, cosmologies and epistemologies outside of the Western construct. Yeah, yeah I agree with that. B, it's nonlinear, mm -hmm. and uh, history repeats and rhymes mm -hmm. in these ways. But C, it situates us in the facing the shadow of this moment, right? Like, according to all accounts in the Indian tradition, it doesn't matter how you do your calculations of these cycles, we are in the Dark Ages. And No question. And in the alchemical tradition, they would say we're in the underworld, mm. right? In the Buddhist traditions, they'd say we're in the time of degeneration. Mm. Um, in the Iroquois, it's the, the time of the, the uh, seventh fire, mm -hmm. right? And so uh, I think the Incas is the sixth world and the Hopi have the sixth world, right? So there's just the, the, there's these different conceptions of where we are and where we're going, but they're all firmly rooted in like, let's stand clear in the understanding that we are not in some golden age of humanity, that humanity is not the peak of the evolutionary process. We are just the youngest additions to the Congress of Life. And there's a humility in the recognition 
that we are in the heart of the Kali Yuga. We can also just say this is the Anthropocene, mm. right? This is the scientific lens mm. that human activity has affected every uh, aspect of the ecosystem, mm. every aspect of the biosphere. Uh, that we we are destroying the very fabric of life that holds you know the weft and weave of this world together, and that starting point that acknowledgement is critical and that's what i mean by the understanding of context okay. and and so if we can understand that context if we can start uh removing this kind of uh, western uh, positivism and uh, uh the the sort of idea of also not just positivism uh, in the sense that things can be rationally understood but the positivity right that also comes with with western culture uh we have an elder named Teokasen Ghost Horse who, who calls Western culture one aspect of it toxic positivity. Mm. Right? That we, we need to feel like everything is getting better. Yeah. Why? Exactly. Because we're entitled into the belief, yeah. right, that yeah. uh, Hollywood is socialized in us in and consumerism right. and like the, the, the kind of, uh, you know, um, Bill Gates, Steven Pinker point of view, this new optimist point of view everyone has a microwave in their house so the world must be getting better right, right? it's like we, we have to deprogram ourselves from this toxic positivity and the belief in in rationalism that we can and solutionism that we can solve every problem with human intellect mm -hmm. and really step back and understand that every time we attempt to solve problems through the logic of the mind and this includes the extension of our mind which is technology we create a host of problems we have no idea how to address mm -hmm. And that there isn't some rosy, forward-moving arrow that is, you know, the human manifest destiny. Mm. That this is a form of uh, hubris and arrogance and human exceptionalism that is leading to the destruction of the more-than-human world and the living planet. Right. And that's a critical starting point for the context. And that requires practice. Just like uh, spiritual work and uh, striving towards enlightenment mm -hmm. requires practice, mm -hmm. Being good students of our culture requires mm. practice. Mm. Mm. And so, uh, you know, if we spent as much time uh, understanding the political economy, dissecting capitalist modernity, as we did going to self-help classes and, you know, listening to Joe Rogan podcasts and, you know, going to Joe Dispenza workshops or listening to Tony Robbins or whatever, mm. uh, you know, I'm just picking on the, the, the kind of archetypal uh, white male savior. But if we just spent even half of that time trying to understand the political economy, we'd have a fundamentally different world. Mm -hmm. If we spent half that time communing with the animate planet, being in dialogue with the natural world, we would have a fundamentally different culture. Mm -hmm. right? If we spent half that time trying to hear the voices of our ancestors and understanding what redemption work wants to happen through us, we would have a fundamentally different social fabric and construct. But that's the, this is the culture we're in, right? It creates what, what Francis Weller, the psychotherapist, calls the two sins of modernity, which is amnesia and anesthesia, the forgetting and the numbing. That's good. You know, and that's what's preventing us from better understanding the context. Okay, can I, I, I want to just respond to this. Yeah. I, I totally agree with everything you're saying. Um, so... My sense is that there are growing, there is a growing number of people that are waking up to the fact of, at least to some extent, what you're talking about. Growing number of people, yeah. right? 
like the context of the Kali Yuga, for example, and then the Yugas afterwards. So this, that kind of gives us time. So, so like my and Mary's involvement, for example, in the whole sort of uh, resistance movement to try and get government to act on, on climate change and, and so forth and everything, all the other tipping points that, are, yeah. that were happening, is, is one of like triage in a sense. It's like, you know, we have to stop the bloodletting, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. like, because mm -hmm. if we don't, we aren't going to have a world. So if you, if you, in a certain way, if you embrace the Kali Yuga perspective, it's sort of like, well, we, we still have time. There is going to be another Yuga. In other words, because yeah. also the, just another aspect of this is a lot of climate activists really, um, you know, they don't have a lot of this background I and mean, they do need to have it. Yeah. And I really think that that's important because the, the whole sort of historical context of all of this yeah. is what you've been referring to. Yeah. Um, is not part of our, the way we've been taught to look at the world. Everything's about like what we have now, where we're going to go in the future, yeah. etc. Yeah. So, so the whole spiritual dimension of this, the connection to our ancestors you were talking about, but also, you know, the, the, the ontological spiritual perspective yeah. of life, right? Yeah. Which, you know, I've spent a lot of my life involved in that. Yeah. Uh, you know, but a lot of people haven't. I mean, a lot of climate activists don't have that perception. And it's kind of interesting that like Roger and, and Gail have gone in these different directions because they're both responding to different things, both exactly. of which are actually, I think, really important. But how to find, how to put all that together? Because, yeah, you know, and the fact that maybe we are one of the last gener few generations of the of of, of the human experience. Yeah, yeah. Let, let, let's start with the, the the idea of the cycles first. Just because there is another cycle, it doesn't guarantee human continuation in those cycles. Okay. It's that's just the that's the cycle of the universe, right? Like okay. the, the 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 sort of Fair enough, yeah. you know the Vedic approach is much bigger than an anthropocentric approach, yeah. right? The other thing is that Kali Yuga is the most important spiritual time for the souls of all beings. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So what you do in the Kali Yuga, mm. what archetypal role you manifest at the end of time mm. says everything about the trajectory of your eternal soul mm. in the Vedic tradition. Mm. So, you know, there's deep karmic spiritual cosmic implications to how we're behaving now understanding time cyclically is not an alibi to abdicate your responsibility right. quite the opposite right. it's it's a call to attention and urgency mm. and it's also a call to uh, a non-dualistic approach which is you know there's this african proverb the times are urgent let us slow down right mm. it's not just what we do that matters it's the manner in which we proceed and so what we're seeing, for example, this shift, right? You're talking about the two founders of Extinction Rebellion, uh, Roger Hallam, who's going into the kind of more rationalist space, let's say, the, the urgency, um, let's get the British government to stop through direct nonviolent action, and this is our definition of what it is to be radical. And Gail, who's going into this, like, let's support... Uh, other epistemologies from the global south and cosmologies, indigenous worldviews, etc. And, and we need to create like a broader tent of understanding in order to address these problems. The, they're representing the kind of archetypal split of the left in general, right? So the left has grown up in a rationalist materialist sense, right? For Marxism, it was around historical 
materialism, right, and seeing the world in terms of class struggles and uh, ownership divides, and you know the proletariat versus the the bourgeoisie, and God died for the left, as as Nietzsche said, right, in the 1800s. Right. And so the the strong impulse of the left has been really informed by the secular materialist Absolutely. approach, right. Absolutely. And it's also the part of the the bankruptcy of the left and the failure of the left is that we have not created a deeper totally. spiritual cosmology yeah. that invites people into a way of understanding yeah. that is appealing, right? Because um, yeah, the logical outcome of secular materialism is you know, really existing communism, not not communism in the philosophical sense of what it could be, because there's such beauty in communist political philosophy, but its execution ends up being inherently bureaucratic, technocratic, anti-human, anti-life, right. uh, uh, centralized, uh, um, etc. That's not necessarily how the original thinkers of communism wanted it to play out, but that's what happens when you, you try to, when you're not aware of how ontology and epistemology and ethics all play together, right? And then you look at the New Age movement, for example, and I'm going to you know caricature this a little bit, but this idea that um, uh, enlightenment is a self-initiated project, right? Which is very neoliberal in its approach. Mm. Uh, yeah. th this idea that I, I myself have work to do and I can't actually go help the world until I myself am healed, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And the, it, it's spiritual narcissism, mm -hmm. right, at right. its core. Right. And, and there's a new, uh, and that's why I like that you called this, this podcast and, and the project Third Space, because there is this kind of third way or sort of multiple thirds, let's say. Yeah, multiple thirds. Uh, kind of... Emerging, which is uh, we have to sort of bridge the uh, the kind of materialist spiritual divide, the the sort totally. of like uh, political versus mystical. Yeah, that these are actually the same impulse, right? And this is why I like the language of mystical anarchism, because the impulse of mysticism and the impulse of anarchism mm. are are the same impulse, really, right? Mm. Uh, myst mysticism is uh, direct relationship to the divine mm. no mediation by mm. institutional religions mm. uh, bibles uh, popes imams etc mm. and the anarchist you know the famous anarchist tagline is no gods no masters mm. Mm. right and one of the key principles is subsidiarity that we we distribute power at the most localized level at the community level where people are affected and where decisions should be made because that's the implications of those decisions mm. will be the most felt and most lived in those spaces mm. and and so anarchism and mysticism are, are sort of a natural marriage you know which is the the impulse for not just uh, self-governance but community governance right and not just community governance but commons governance right there's a, a, a social peer relational aspect to how we want to live right. and 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 that becomes sort of like critical to sort of bridging this divide and i think as we become better students of the context these ideas of localism of anarchism of mysticism of peer governance of the commons of of communal land stewardship um start to become central mm. but now let's take like the second half of the equation because you sort of nodded it to let's say you know Gramsci's equation right yeah 
uh, of a description of modernity. Uh, we are prisoners of context in the absence of meaning. Okay, so how do we resacralize meaning? I really like the work of Vanessa Andriotti, and she's she's written a recent book called Hospicing Modernity, which I highly recommend. Okay. But um, they run a Vanessa's part of an activist collective called Gesturing Towards Decolonial Futures, and they have this framework, and the framework is uh, essentially reform. Uh, on one side to to a, a kind of more um, uh, structural change and when, when you're on the the sort of reformist approach w w the kind of description is uh, asking the same questions and looking for the same answers right how do we change things within this existing structure and then you get to this more like I think they call it soft radical reform which is like the epistemological turn where we start uh, asking the same questions but getting to different answers because the the knowledge base is sort of changing and then there's the more radical reform which is where you it was the ontological shift where you start asking different questions to get different answers mm -hmm. and uh, I think that's part of the meaning making work is what it requires is this ontological shift okay so what does that mean Ontology is simply the philosophy of isness, right? Of right. beingness. Being. Why is the world the way it is? What is my conception of reality? Mm. And it, why I said it was deeply linked to epistemology is like we also have to ask why do we think we know that? Mm. And then we also have to ask the ethical question of like, well, well what then shall I do? Right. And how do I show up in the world? Right. Understanding my construction of knowledge is so and my understanding of reality is so, right? right? And so the, the dominant ontology is a separatist, separate from nature, materialist, the world can be reduced to material things, mm -hmm. rationalist, we can understand those reduced things through our mind, primarily, mm. uh, positivist, we can sort of logically uh, validate the existence of these things mm. through scientific consensus, scientific method, uh, etc., our determination of what is reality. Uh, and so we, we have to sort of, a shift in ontology requires a deconstruction of scientific materialism right. and rationalism. Which is not a, not a small thing. Which is not a small thing. Yeah. It's, it's literally, you know, when people talk about decolonization work or de-schooling work or deprogramming work, this is the realm in which we're talking, right? So it's very much a practice. So, so meaning making is not just a shift it's not just that you can turn the ontological key right. and all of a sudden you're no it's 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 a deep practice right. right so i'm looking at your voice recorder here and the the ontological gaze by which i look at this recorder has been deeply socialized into the culture that i grew up in mm -hmm. right so i see that as separate mm -hmm. a piece of machinery mm -hmm. that is made of its composite parts mm -hmm. that had a creator, mm. a manufacturer, mm. um, and is uh, operating on uh, some kind of battery energy uh, that is technology in my mind that I don't fully understand. Mm. And I sort of relegate this to the realm of gadget, mm. let's say, one of my ontological categories. Machine, technology, gadget, other. Now, uh, another approach 
to look at this would be a more animistic approach. One could say uh, a kind of panpsychic approach, right? In the sense that I'm not even saying this is right. I'm just saying that that uh, all beings, including this recorder, have their own agency. It may not have a soul, but the, the individual atoms that comprise it have their own entelechy, their own desire, their own willingness, right. their own being. They so so. Uh, this is not a thing that is separate to me. This is consciousness distributed in multiple forms manifesting in the physical form of a recorder that I am both atomically from an atom sense and in the in a, in a spirit realm sense entangled with and interconnected with and not just all recorders but this particular recorder right now and I have a relationality and have an intimacy beyond what I can understand right there's just other ways of interacting that are not just simply the separatist, materialist, rationalist worldview. But now this requires cognitive energy, mm. right? This requires not just cognitive energy, it requires time, mm. right? It requires a disruption in my ontological gaze, mm. in my habituated way of seeing the world. Mm. And, um, practice, right? And practice. Mm. And Potentially and arguably one of the most critical components of the ontological shift is having these experiences of boundary dissolving, yeah, yeah. Uh, kind of psyche dissolving, mm. um, subject object transcendence, right. you know, where it doesn't matter if it's yoga, if it's meditation, if it's tantra, it's psychedelics, w w silence, the, 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 all, there's all these sort of activities um, that have been practices for hundreds, thousands of years that sort of help get us into these states that prepare us. They set the groundwork for uh, subject-object uh, transcendence, mm -hmm. seeing the world not just as separate subjects and objects, but the, that there is no object. There's just a series of subjects that are interrelated and interconnected. Mm -hmm. And that's very difficult work, right? That that it's that's the traditional work. ground of mysticism sure. and and spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, you can do the context work, which is important. But you, but what's also, and I, this is, I'm subjectively stating this is not. I don't believe in truth with a capital T. But uh, perhaps the the second aspect of this that's required to uh, not just be contextually sensitive. But to be contextually relevant, to be useful in the context of the Kali Yuga, in the context of the Anthropocene, is to have the requisite ontological shift that points to a more animistic, relational, transrational, queer, quantum worldview, mm. where things are entangled. Mm. And I would argue that in some ways the antidote to materialism is animism is to see and feel yeah. and be in dialogue with the world as living mm. and becoming mm. as the universe as living and becoming mm. as consciousness living and becoming mm. not separate to us but through us with us for us and that requires deep spiritual practice 
and also that the perhaps the antidote to rationalism is relationalism yeah the, there's this line by david abram in the spell of the sensuous uh, which is a beautiful book i recommend uh, where he says there is no objective truth with the capital t there is only the quality of relationships mm. that objectivity is an illusion mm. right there's subjective realities mm. that require relationality to have consensus mm. that we could see the world in a similar way mm. and we may not even have to see the world in a similar way if our relational lines are tended to mm. and then perhaps like the, the antidote to um positivism and the idea of logic as the way to solve all problems is more of this kind of uh, let's call it a trans rationality a trans logic that doesn't amputate rationality or logic but um, incorporates them into other aspects of sense making in the both the seen and the unseen realms mm -hmm. and these are just a few of the you know aspects in the continuum right these are just uh, some of the texture in what uh, ontological shift could look like. I, I, I think that's fantastic, and I, I'm, I'm totally with you on all that. And it's uh, it's uh, it's complex. I mean, there's a lot involved in what you're talking about. It's huge, actually, because because we're so also because we're because we're so embedded in yeah. in the kind of psychosis we've, create, we've yes. created. Yeah. So um, so I'll say on one yeah. level it's so complex, and on another level. Uh, it could happen in one breath. Yeah, yeah. I or agree. it could be a lifetime of suffering. I, I agree. It, you know, it, it, fundamentally, when you're talking about ontology, it's yeah. a shift. It's it's a it's a it's a, just a shift of perspective. It's a shift of perspective, and and what, partly what it requires is just the acknowledgement of the context, right? Right. If, if, right. if you don't see, if you don't see the psychosis of the world that we're creating, yeah. then you're complicit in it, yes, right? Yes, yes, yes. And totally. and like this, this is what. Uh, it's always difficult for me when I'm around like uh, Silicon Valley people or AI people or anyone who's sort of uh, fascinated and attached to some kind of savior optimism model of how uh, the world is going to get better, yeah, cryptocurrency, totally, totally. whatever, whatever yeah. the flavor of the day is, because they're they're so deeply enthusiastic, mm. uh, partly in their salesmanship mm. of of <laughs> this thing that they're you know yeah. benefiting from, right? Yeah. And enthusiasm to me is a betrayal of the context. Yeah. When someone is deeply, and I, of course, I think as, a, as someone who, who comes from uh, the the lands of the north uh, in, in Europe, the, the English have a great sensibility about this, right? That American culture doesn't have. And I, I often see the interaction between like Brits and Americans where the American enthusiasm is almost like it's, it's deeply embarrassing, right? It sort of causes this discomfort, right? And I really appreciate that about the, the, the kind of... Um, the, the yeah the part of the north northern European cultures well, I think that have I think, that yeah I think it's hard also for for America to for, for in America to sort of understand how deep it goes yeah exactly it exactly goes so deep and 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 at this point I mean it used to be Britain that was really sort of the, the heart of the empire of this the, yeah you know, some of some of Costa Rica waiter said to me the other day you know oh you live in London that's the heart of the beast and I thought you know it's great that's a that's a great way of putting it you know? yeah and it's true. But also with America now, we're talking about something that's yeah. so extreme, and you know, obviously. Anyway, but that's a. That's but but topic, so just but to say to say yeah. this the, to to sort of complete that thought is to say that the reason like what enthusiasm over enthusiasm does is it sort of betrays 
the 200 species that went extinct today. Yeah. Right? It betrays the 95% of humanity that are living, barely keeping body and soul together, yeah. right? In the aftermath and the continued, continual pillage of uh, colonialist, imperialist, uh, capitalist structures, right? Absolutely. And so, so part of what's required is this like sobriety mm. and this acknowledgement of the context and the mm. impoverishment. We have spiritual impoverishment as well mm. that we've imposed on our worlds through the culture right. and so that's why i say the starting place in, in and you know it's not linear but it's discursive as starting place mm. is to be good students of our culture mm. and then as you say it is difficult on some level but it also doesn't need to be and, and i feel like the the natural impulse uh, at least for me has been to become a conscientious objector of the dominant culture yeah yeah and Absolutely. I find deep satisfaction in oh, that, yeah, right? Too, yeah. And and the better you understand the psychosis of the culture, the better you can be a conscientious objector, mm. right? Mm -hmm. um, Alnor, um, what about though? I mean, I, I I want to just come back to this because I, I want to get your how you understand it. Um, like I said, we've been very involved in the in this resistance movement. So, what about political social social justice action? In relationship to what you're talking about mm -hmm. because you know from the, a certain perspective you know we have no time you know we may only have the next decade mm -hmm. in which to try to get our governments mm -hmm. to actually act on climate change these things are completely interconnected right this is why i talk about anarchism and mysticism and spirituality of politics as uh, the same practice and we sort of touched upon this a little bit, but let's go deeper. So if part of the work is being a good student of your culture, another part of the work is the disidentification, right? Being a conscientious yeah. objector. Part of the work is uh, creating lived, embodied cultures outside of the dominant culture. Mm -hmm. That would be the logical conclusion, right? From understanding the psychosis of the culture, yeah. uh, disidentifying from it, right. and uh, and then living those values, right. right? And that is the the arena of spiritual political praxis, right? So, and, and this is what I was talking about, like what archetypal role do you want to play at the end of time? What archetypal role do you want to play in the Kali Yuga? These are not decisions to be made lightly, right? This Western conception of purpose is such bullshit, right? Yeah. We don't have purpose outside of context. Right. We don't have purpose outside of a spiritual, political, materialist, post-materialist, yeah. uh, you know, humanist, post-humanist lens. And it could but, be argued that this, that actually this moment right now could provide us with more meaning uh, I mean potentially than than I mean everything you were saying about the exactly Yuga, it's the, exactly it's the place where you know it's the training ground can be actually sought more than anywhere else because you know it's it's it's, it's it puts everybody on on, on the edge of, 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 of evolution if you completely like. it's the training ground for great souls for learned souls exactly, yeah. who are willing to incarnate during the darkest age and reflect back to the living universe who we are. And so what we do and how we do it and the manner by which we approach is consciousness itself becoming self-aware. Yeah. 
And so we, we are sending signals to the animistic world of what matters to us and why. Mm. So it's critical that we organize. And if we continue to organize at the same level of consciousness with the us versus them, uh, with the sense of urgency uh, that is not embedded in, a, in, in, let's say, deep time, in ancestral time, in the time out of time, in the time of our ancestors, then we replicate the same mistakes anyways. So urgency can be helpful and it can be not helpful, mm. right? I think as activists, part of the, the, the thing we have to admit, and so, you know, I, I don't come from like a new age spiritual background. I'm not trying to tell people, go work on yourself and that's going to, no. I come from a political mm. background. I grew up in the anti-globalization movement. Mm. I've been an organizer since my 20s. Mm. And what there, there's a, a Nigerian poet and philosopher who's, who's a dear friend named Bayo Komalafe. Yes, and, yes, and, and one of the things Bayo says is, part of the crisis is the way we're responding to the crisis as activists. Mm. So yes, the urgency is great and protest is important and organizing in the streets and, and at the same time, what level of consciousness are we doing that with? And actually, is that helping the structure? Mm. And one could argue that the, this, uh, n this inner and outer mirroring is also a critical part of the work. We have to see how our inner structures are being manifested externally and then do the requisite work internally as well right that these are these are not two separate yeah. realms that you do one and then you do the other mm -hmm. i go to my protest mm -hmm. and then or i get enlightened enough and then i will start doing mm -hmm. political or i'll get rich enough and then i'll start a philanthropy it's like the time for all of these old distinctions yeah, is yeah, over yeah. they have to happen simultaneously yeah. like uh, i've learned more about my spiritual practice through protest through organizing like for me that has been the dojo of uh uh, of spiritual acceleration mm. because I see how my anger I see how my uh, my judgment my othering uh, reflects back to me the, the world that I want to change right and that I'm actually perpetuating the structures that I I, I want to dismantle mm. and, and so that reflection is so important like for example, I think it's much more important, and I'm going to create a false binary here just to make a point. I think it's much more important for uh, the political realm, especially if we can use the word left, progressive uh, organizers and activists to have their works be infused with a spiritual mystical dimension than it is for new age people and spiritual quote-unquote spiritual people to be politicized because it doesn't matter how much we politicize people who are spiritual narcissists mm. it doesn't matter how much ayahuasca they drink yeah. at the end of the day they're going to become better capitalists mm. right because psychedelics and meditation and point. yoga can also amplify your own delusions yeah. so what i like about working with people who are in the political realm mm. is they're already inherently empathetic mm. they're already inherently committed to changing the materialist social structures and mm. cultural structures and so a little medicine a little spiritual practice goes a long way in in those realms yeah that's a really interesting point actually because like one of the things that we've found since working with insulate britain in particular 
most of the people coming into that work are from the north of the country mm -hmm. and these are people that traditionally have been outside they've they're they're, they're kind of they've they've had a bad deal from the system yeah. so in a way they, they, they there's more there's more humility there there's more uh, anger but but there's also more community yeah there is so there's a so it, it's been a very interesting experience for us to actually feel a sense of community around you know making this kind of change and of course it's it's because it's based in a, in nonviolence yeah. so so that is we found that really powerful actually and even though there are levels and dimensions to you know what you've been talking about that are that are not there that haven't been developed, but nevertheless there's something good there. Yeah, at the heart of it. And, yeah, um, you so know that's it's, really. It's, it, it, it's interesting when you say this about insulate because you know p part of what I would say is like, you know, I believe in like an ecosystem of approaches, right? So I think insulate insulate Britain is inherently important and a good thing, and it needs to be part of a bigger strategy, right? Because just talking about um, home insulation or the government's role, for example, has also a whole bunch of uh, concomitant effects we're not even aware of, right? We are reifying the power of the government to make these decisions, right? Uh, on a subconscious level, we're appealing mm. to the all-powerful decision-maker. Mm. We're, we're um, uh, Even the framing, Insulate Britain, appeals to a xenophobic... Uh, uh, nation-state identity of like Britain and not to say this is good or bad or uh, even explicit or purposeful or anything right there's mm. all these unintended consequences of activist and organizing work mm. right? inevitably inevitably yeah. and then there's all this beauty that comes with which is people come together mm. to like uh, uh, demand change in their communities mm and uh, hold their governments accountable and responsible and, and community gets built. And so then the question is, uh, how, in, in some way, the world of Roger Hallam and the world of Gale actually have to come back together. Oh, totally. Right? And, uh, and, yeah, and so there's a, a, a what's the larger uh, liberatory, emancipatory project for which uh, organizers and activists can bring their energy that's not just in these you know, isolated issues Right. And, and what I'm seeing, for example, like the whole anti-vaxxer thing is so interesting. Right. Mm -hmm. all, all these lot, mostly Western, lots of like entitled people mm -hmm. are now consider themselves activists. They call anti-vax work yeah. activism. Yeah. Right. And on one level, they're not wrong. Yeah. Right. Because they see these as sort of abuses of uh, human rights wow. and uh, free ch freedom of choice and mm -hmm. etc. And on another level, like they couldn't get out of bed for economic inequality, global <laughs> poverty, the destruction Terrible. of the climate. But as soon as their free will and their freedom of choice is uh, uh, activated, mm. then, you know, they're, they're organizers now, yeah. right? And, and that's not a bad thing either. Just like Insulate Britain is not inherently good or bad. The, these are sort of important impulses for people to start understanding the agency of their power mm. And also, I would say, let's also be in contemplation about the, the, the consequences of what we're doing and the, the level of consciousness we're bringing to these, uh, these things. Because, you know, even the idea of like nonviolence as some kind of holy silver bullet, it's like 
there's so many levels of nonviolence, right? And and nonviolence can also contribute to violence and illicit violence, right? So the moral agency can be pure, but then the collective field is is polluted, right? This was the big debates between Gandhi and uh, Aurobindo, right? Where where Aurobindo would say to Gandhi, like, okay, all well and fine with your nonviolence, but there's you know a few hundred thousand Brits in this country, and there's you know, a few hundred million Indians, and we could just the the threat of violence itself could stop all of this violence. So you're too puritanical. <laughs> that's a, that's that's interesting, and I because yeah, no, I mean, um, I mean, I think most of their argument was around the Second World War. Actually, was because Aurobindo, I think, was totally right. Gandhi was very rigid. Yeah, he was rigid, so, um, and that was what Aurobindo was basically the point. Yeah. He was basically making you can't sort of like, you know, nonviolence. It's all. It depends on the context. It depends and on the basically, context. he was saying, "Look, you know, you don't sit here and let the Jews all get killed by the Germans, you know, in order to just be nonviolent. I mean, yeah, it's like crazy. Yeah, you know. So, so he advocated, you know, that India should definitely get involved with the with the Second World War for for that reason, you know, and um, and, and he also advocated like blowing up English supply chains during the independence movement, you know." Uh, yes, I mean that was before he became a mystic. But yeah. yeah, but but even after his his mystical conversion, he believed in contextual understanding of of what should be done, and and he was uh, he he was harboring um, uh, what would be considered uh, violent uh, activists. You know, mm. people who were blowing up supply chains and, and and things like that in Pondicherry. You know, he was using his position of privilege in ways that you know Gandhi would have shunned those people and yeah. not allowed them in the ashram and 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 not even to say there's a right or wrong more what I'm saying is it doesn't I, I don't think there's going to be a kind of holy grail concept whether it's nonviolence whether it's you know uh, this concept of ascension you know <laughs> the, the, you know the new age talk about this ascension and there's this new dimension coming in whether that's true or not it, the, for me these are what we need is a plurality of approaches yeah. linked to a deeper project of humility an ontological shift mm. and uh, a, a sort of critique of the dominant system yeah. these things need to come together right yeah we don't want to put we don't want to make an ideology out of nonviolence. yeah i mean i I, that's my understanding yeah and and also saying. like nonviolence to what end like okay Nonviolence in service to uh, changing energy policy in the UK. Okay, I mean, who's going to be opposed to that, right? Mm. Nonviolence in service to a liberatory, emancipatory, non or let's say post anthropocentric, post patriarchal, post capitalist, post imperialist worldview like that would be um, uh, like that's compelling. But I think this and uniting. Is, this is this exactly this is what's happening right. Yeah. Now, at least in the UK, there's yeah. a lot of questioning going on. I mean, even like Roger now has, I mean, literally in the last few months, his whole view is opening up to all this being about dialogue. We have to connect with each other. We have to create community. I mean, his whole and and Gail is so there is to me they're yeah, sort of happening. in a way they they are an example of kind of what's happening in a broader cultural way that there is some there is deep questioning going on of all of these things that is actually it's in right in the midst of it right now yeah there, there's a, a a line that's come to me a few times um, which was uh, if you do not have 
a critique of capitalist modernity, you are contextually irrelevant. If all you have is a critique, you're spiritually and creatively impoverished. Mm. And so what's required is both an understanding of the context mm. and a spiritual, creative, uh, ontological shift yeah. that, that is linked with deep relationality with the living planet and, and humility and asking for its counsel, her counsel, guidance, uh, accessing the more than human realms and the unseen realms. And, and this kind of merger of like mysticism and anarchism or the political and spiritual, I think is happening. Yeah. And, you know, um, I've been in the midst of this writing project and, and my co-author Lynn Murphy and I have sort of been using this, this frame, this handle, which is um, justice, uh, just transition plus onto shift. So it's like, we're every, the left is, and, and progressive movements have been talking about the just transition, mm. right? A sort right. of social justice oriented right. transition to what could be. And we're like, yeah, as well as the ontological shift right. is also required Absolutely. that that allows us to see the world as not separate, right. as as a, a sort of living reflection of who we are and what we are becoming. Yeah. You know, in the Sufi sense, we would say like Allah is a metaphor for the universe becoming self-aware right. Right. through us right. and consciousness is distributed. Right. And so there is no just transition as some like, uh, abstract thought out right. there right. it also requires the inner work yeah. and it also requires structural work and right. also requires community work right. and if we were going to play the acronym game you know the plus becomes like pluralistic yeah. liberatory yeah. uniting mm -hmm. and symbiotic mm -hmm. with the natural mm -hmm. world mm -hmm. and so that's kind of a framework we've been yeah, playing with yeah beautiful just this plus really really good so you're writing about that right now right? yeah yeah it sounds beautiful yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, it's great having this conversation because I'm, I'm so with you. I mean, I feel all of this, this is what Mary and I are really struggling with, really, is like, how do you put all this together? Mm -hmm. and how do you, because you have to put your energy somewhere. Yeah. And, you know, may, and you need to put it in some places at certain times and other places another time. Yeah, and completely. And find a way with that. And, 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 and this is why it's such a deep practice, right? And why I say this is um, sp spiritual political praxis. Right, praxis being the the application of theory. Uh, it's like as soon as you deepen your context and your understanding of context, you're going to be in a state of making much better contextually sensitive and contextually relevant decisions. Like you would not come up with the idea of like conscious capitalism if you really understood capitalism. Even the idea of development or charity, they they, they only exist because uh, justice doesn't exist, right? And we haven't created s systemic justice. Right. And so the very act of being in contemplation about the context mm -hmm. then presents opportunities for the spiritual political praxis right. to, exactly. to, to appear. Exactly. And then those, uh, those moments of whatever it is, being involved in Insulate Britain, protest, Extinction Rebellion, whatever, uh, are a cauldron for, for the spirit and the soul yeah. to then go deeper into the practice of mm. transcending subject-object mm. mm. and embodying post-capitalist realities right. through how we show up. Right, exactly. But we have exactly. to be both contextually informed mm. and spiritually guided. Right, exactly. 
Yeah, the spiritually guided part is an interesting one because in a certain way we, we're all unique in that. What, mm -hmm. what our particular guidance is is going to be different for each one of us at each, mm -hmm. at each moment, at each time. And that's uh, something only we, I mean, that's part, that is the practice, right? That's mm -hmm. part of the big part of the practice right there. Mm -hmm. is that you know mm -hmm. just actually Completely. being being very sensitive to that and struggling with that at times about of what course. that really means of course know, what yeah is what, what what is how should i be at this particular how should i be and, and just the willingness myself? right and the humility of that it's like we don't know sometimes guidance comes very clear the omens are very clear and and there's there's times where um we have no idea why we're doing what we're doing for extended periods of time. Right. And that's also important, mm -hmm. right? Because this is part of the decolonization work and the deprogramming work is our desire for certainty mm. in the West mm. is part of our privilege and our entitlement. Yeah, we feel totally. entitled to know. <laughs> and that's, that's just not, yeah. the, that's not the, the, the texture of the spirit realm. Exactly. And it's also in a way part of the, 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 the kind of both the struggle and also the something emerging out of the Kali Yuga is, mm -hmm. as well is mm -hmm. that actually is mm -hmm. that is that where things are really uncomfortable and difficult and you know um, I, I, I mean you know we, we, we you know we, we part of our whole sort of world is a, is a world where we've become so comfortable because we you know that we you know we, it's very hard for us to to sort of deal with some with with kind of the end of the world. I mean, it's like completely. You know, it's, like it's inconvenient. We just, we just it's like <laughs> you know. Like I, a, I, I have a friend named Michael Bronstein, who's a um, uh, he was a beatnik and he's a poet. He, he's written a beautiful poem called "The World on Fire," um, like a book-length poem. And he reminded me the other day. He said uh, the Greek god said that we humans can only know at most about half of anything if we presume to know more than half we're trespassing on the the territory and the realm of the gods yeah. and we'll be punished for our arrogance yeah, yeah, that's cool. right like and, and so it's like the the humility of being in the ambiguity yeah. and in the uncertainty right. and in the chaos and in mm. the messiness right. of what it is to be alive at the end of time as we know it the end mm. of history as we know it is partly informing what we need to do right this is what i mean by the ontology and the epistemology and the ethics are connected the manner by which we approach is as important as uh, as what we are approaching yeah. and why we are approaching totally. it right and so there's a sufi aphorism which is humility is the aphrodisiac of the gods Humility is the aphrodisiac of the gods. And so by being in the, I, I just don't know what, how I should use my life force right now. Mm. And I, I'm constantly studying the culture and understanding its impoverishments and have an independent critical lens on it. And uh, I'm inundated with projects I could spend my time on. And if I still don't know, so what do I do? You know, I create an altar to the mother for an extended period of time and I just ask, how do I be in best service to your unfolding? Mm -hmm. Like, that's what I mean, the times are urgent, let us slow down. Mm -hmm. Like, that might be a more impactful strategy than seizing a communication satellite. Right. I, but, but without the willingness to be in dialogue, without the consent from 
the Gain and Teleki, mm. without the, the 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 kind of conversation and the permission of the living world, we we're sort of trespassing, you know, and imposing right. our rationalist points of view on what needs to change and why. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for the conversation and the time. Thank you, Anna. Uh, really, really beautiful to talk to you about this. Thank you so much. Yeah, what else is there to talk about, really? <laughs> I know. Exactly. Yeah. yeah thank you.